Welcome back to One on One, New York's longest-running sports call-in show. I am Michael Legan, joined alongside by Alex Wolves. And right now, we'd like to welcome in a New York Mets legend who was a member of the 1969 World Champion team. He's also the author of Here's the Catch, a memoir of the Miracle Mets and more, Mr. Ron Swoboda. Ron, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here. You guys good? And we're doing great. So, Ron... Ron, right off the top, you know, um, well, a little bit about me. I'm a diehard Mets fan. So, of course, my whole life I've heard nothing but, you know, amazing stories about you, my grandfather, my father, et cetera. Um, and, you know, of course, so many Mets fans know you for your amazing catch in game four of the 1969 World Series. So I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but I'd be kicking myself if I didn't talk about it. So could you just kind of walk us through that a little bit? What's it like to be remembered for maybe not only one of the greatest catches in Mets history, but World Series history and you know, there you were in the outfield. You got Brooks Robinson at the plate, men on first and third. The game's kind of on the line. If you kind of walk us through what was going through your mind at the time. Yeah, I got. I have to feel pretty privileged, you know. Uh, yeah. You play nine years in the big leagues. You make a few mistakes along the way. And uh, to be remembered uh, for the best play you ever made in the only World Series you were ever in is a pretty fortunate thing, you know. And, and, and we were – we were up two games to one on the Orioles and, and game four was uh, right down, right down to the stretch top of the ninth inning. We had a one run lead. They had two runners aboard when Brooks Robinson hit a line drive off to my right. And I just took off, you know, and somebody said, what was on your mind? I wasn't thinking anything, but chase that thing, you know? And, and I thought 95% of the way there, I was going to be a day late and a dollar short. So I laid out to my backhand. And when that thing hit me in the web, I knew I had it. I knew I had it. So I, I knew the worst thing was the game was tied and we were still alive. And, and that's the fulcrum of that World Series. We're up two games to one if the Orioles win that game. And, and, and if they score the go-ahead run, there's a good chance they would have. Um, you know, we're tied at two. Instead, we we go on to win the game and, and go up three games to one with game five at Shea Stadium. Uh, we were in the driver's seat. And everyone talks about that catch, Ron, but I also think there's a lot about that team in general where you talk about really pulling off the upset against the terrific Orioles team and winning that World Series. What do you think it was beyond just that catch, beyond that moment, about that team that season that really made the World Series possible for you? really interesting because uh, if you go back and look at the National League playoff against the Braves, whom we beat three straight, they knocked our pitching around pretty good. And it was our left-handed platoon and their offense. They out-hit the Braves with Henry Aaron, uh, Rico Cardi, um, Orlando Cepeda. That was a pretty solid middle of the lineup there that could do some damage. And they did in that World Series. And our guys out-hit them. Against the Orioles in the American League, our pitching uh, started to exert itself, you know, and and it looked like um, it looked like we could play with these guys. And we lost Game One to the Orioles in in Memorial Stadium, where I grew up in Baltimore, and and I remember Gil Hodges, our manager, who just never missed a point. He said to us after the game, "Guys, just remember, you don't have to be anything." but what got you here? In other words, don't try to get bigger than life. You won a hundred ball games in the regular season. Just be that team. You don't have to be better than that team. 
and it kind of settled us down a little bit. And we went out there thinking, you know, we, we, we can play with these people. And we did. Yeah. Well, you guys certainly did. The Miracle Mets are probably one of the greatest upsets in sports history and one of the greatest runs in history. You know, Ron, you just mentioned uh, the pitching was the key in that world series. And of course, you know, we sadly lost Tom Seaver uh, yeah. this past summer. And I know you obviously you guys were teammates for years. You guys were friends. I was just wondering, is there a story you can share maybe, or something that about Tom that maybe the casual fan doesn't know that kind of tells us the type of man that he was? Well, I'll tell you what, um, Seaver pitched game one and, and the very first hitter, uh, Don Buford hit a fly ball at, at, in Memorial Stadium that I didn't catch, um, that I should have caught against the right field fence. Just didn't, just did everything wrong. You do on a fly ball, nervous as heck. And I let that get over my head and we lose game one. And I feel like I owe Seaver something, but he never said a word about it. You know, it was all go out there and give me what you got and that'll be good enough. But I'll tell you what, Tom Seaver that season in 1969 had a perfect game going against the Cubs late in the season. Shea Stadium is four deep. I mean, every, every standing room only is four deep. The stadium is jammed. Seaver's in the ninth inning, worms up, and before he throws a pitch, he just stops. And you see him rubbing the ball, and he's looking around. He's looking, he's checking out Shea Stadium because in his mind, he said, I got a perfect game going here and I'm going to deliver. And, and he, and he just took in the scene in a way that, you know, us lesser mortals would have never even thought of, you know, let, let, had the, had, had, had the presence of mind. And of course, Randy Hundley, the first hitter, tries to bunt for a base hit their catcher, you know, and it's like, you don't bunt. And Seaver throws him out easy, and it's like, who's going to run for you after you bunt? And then up comes Jimmy Qualls, a guy that's hit two balls pretty hard off of Seaver. And I think very early in that at-bat, he lines one out there, and it's a base hit, clearing away, and the whole thing is like anticlimactic. He's not going to lose the shutout. We're not going to lose the game. But Tom Seaver lost something that I think was really important to him. And he said to, a, uh, to someone who wrote about it, I've never been more disappointed in anything in my life on or off the baseball field than when I lost that perfect game in 1969. He wanted it bad. And we wanted it for him. you know. And it is still a mystery to me why he never had a no-hitter at least. You yeah. know, forget the perfect game. Well, why he never had a no-hitter with the Mets. He didn't get one on, until he went to Cincinnati, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was that's definitely, you know, with Tom Seaver, obviously one of the, the, the sad things, they never got no-hitter with the Mets. With Tom, you, you know, he had that – they still have that um, vineyard in, in, in Calistoga, California, and, and we went out there a couple of years ago. Art Shamsky took us out there when – when he was writing his book and he took me, Bud Harrelson and uh, Jerry Kuzman out there. If you would have seen how proud Tom was of, of the three and a half acres of Cabernet that he grows there and of the house that he built on property that was just, it was natural land. And, and he created this, this beautiful scene. 
and was so proud of it. He went out there every day with his dogs tending the vines and he learned how to clip them and tend them. And because there isn't anything babied or, or handled, you know, there's no agriculture more exacting than growing expensive Cabernet grapes. And, 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 you know, GTS wine is an incredible Cabernet. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think it's like $150 a bottle now and worth every penny, a little out of my category for the most part. I don't buy, a wine that expensive, but when you drink it, you know why. Yeah, that's really awesome stories hearing about Tom. And you mentioned Gil Hodges as well, and you mentioned Tom Seaver. And I feel like this 60s team with the Mets in general had a really interesting pull on just the, the psyche of New York in a sense, because it was a time when you know, the Mets were struggling in previous years, and that kind of changed with this team in 69. What type of impact do you think this that year's Mets had on the city, really coming at us in difficult times, some civil unrest, a lot of challenges? And you mentioned how a figure like Tom and a team like that really changed a lot in New York. Well, yeah, you know, that was, you know, politically it was very fractious time. You know, the Vietnam War was uh, just coming over its peak. A lot of anti-war activity, a lot of identity politics. Um, the, um, oh God, they, they, they um, it, it, you know, feminism, gay rights, all that stuff was starting to emerge politically. And yet we were not as polarized as, as, as people as we are now in, in any stretch of the imagination. And yet it was a really rough time. Um, but the Mets were able to, to sort of paper that over with a, with, with, with a feel good story. You know, we, we, we stuck that in the middle of some pretty tough times. What was good about the times was the war was feeding the economy and there were jobs. And that was interesting because people had jobs. You could come out of college you didn't have to serve, uh, you know, you know, a time, you know, uh, you didn't have to do to do, do uh, free work for companies, you know, to get yourself situated as a junior or senior. Yeah. What do you call intern? Internships, yeah. Internships, yeah. You didn't have to do that with companies. You came out of college with a piece of paper, and they were lined up there wanting yeah. to offer you good jobs. That's the difference, and so. A lot of young people back then, you know, this is the age of Aquarius, you know, uh, what do you mean do I love you? I love everybody, right? <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, some, some young people were taking a year off and, and, you know, to find themselves, you know, and join communes and all this kind of stuff was going on back then because you could. So you had a better audience for anti-war protests, civil rights protests. You had the time on your hands, so you could. Those things um, had a welcome audience, uh, you know, with the ability to show up somewhere. Uh, they weren't as worried about getting a good job because uh, it was there for them. Uh, so it was different in that way. And so we were in in those troubled times. Just this feel-good story that just kind of bubbled up through all of this. And how neat that we were able to do that. Now. It was funny in the game when I made the catch in game four, anti-war elements had published a story that Tom Seaver said, if, if the Mets can get in the World Series, the United States can get out of Vietnam. Well, they used Tom and his likeness and it was completely without his permission. And, and he, he had to say to the media after that game, that became a story. It's like, I'll tell you, when I'm ready to say something about the war, but you don't quote me uh, without my permission. So he had to clear that situation up. And it was, you know, 
in the middle of a World Series a little reality, you know? Yeah. You know, Ron, you mentioned uh, off the top, I think Alex also kind of talked about it, Gil Hodges, um, you know, was obviously vital to that team. And I'm sure you're well aware the past few years has been kind of a push from fans and, you know, former players to try to get Gil into the Hall of Fame, because I think many of us agree uh, it's an injustice. You know, if let's just say, uh, you know, a Hall of Fame voter happens to be listening right now by some chance, what would you say to that person to try to push Gil over the hedge and, you know, make sure that his case for the Hall of Fame is made? You know, what makes him a Hall of Famer? I just think you need to look at Gil Hodges coming out of World War II, which cost him time in the big leagues, okay? Uh, he was a Marine, served on Okinawa. So he understood war, and, and that was a war time for America. And, but it cost him time on his career. And if you looked at what he was as a player, not the accumulation of all the stats, but what he meant in that clubhouse of the Dodgers back then, and then transitions to managing. And, you know, of course, a heart attack, uh, you know, uh, cost him time as a manager. But if you looked at the way he handled teams and what he meant to baseball, and you, and you add up the two things uh, as a player and a manager, I think it's an open and shut case. Uh, and, and, and we do have the Veterans Committee considering that. And I'll be... I'll be completely disappointed and, and, and discouraged in the process if he does not get elected to the Hall of Fame this year. We've talked about a lot of members of that 69 team. Gil Hodges included a great argument there and Tom Seaver. I want to ask about you in particular for just a minute because, you know, write-ups surrounding your book described you as almost this epitome of an everyman on the field. Somebody who can do everything is there just to put the effort out and to make a difference on the team. What type of qualities do you think comes in that everyman type of player that you embodied during your time with that team and the role that you served? Well, look at that roster in 1969. You tell me who were the superstars? Um, Cleon Jones, uh, Tom Seaver, obviously, mm -hmm. you know, unanimous Hall of Famer. Uh, Jerry Kuzman, I think, was a superstar for it. Um, Cleon Jones was vying for a batting title in the National League. So he had reached that level of play. Uh, to me, everybody else was a guy. You know, there's an expression in baseball, just a guy. Well, most of us were just guys out there. And, and we went out there every day. And I think most of us felt like if we didn't lay it all on the line every day, every shot we had, you couldn't compete at that level. I never felt like the big leagues were just there for me. I felt like I was scuffling. I felt like a guy running to catch the train with his suitcase, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I used that illustration in my book. And, and you look in the bar car and there's a bunch of, you know, there's Henry Iron and Tom Seaver and those guys. They're in there having a cocktail and I'm running like hell to try to catch a train. That's the way <laughs> I felt uh, big league baseball was to me. I, I had to hustle or I wasn't going to be there. Yeah. Ron, you know, we, we kind of talked about a little bit and you just mentioned, you know, these stars that were on the 69 team, Cleon, Jerry Kuzman, you know, Seaver, having been there in the beginning when the team was losing and then seeing some of these guys come in, did you start to sit, think and realize, you know what, maybe we can turn this around. Did you start to see the talent that was coming in and think maybe we have a chance now? Yeah, there was a sense when Hodges showed up that the seriousness level here 
had changed. And then you looked at all those arms, okay, beyond Seaver and Kuzman, you know, Gentry and Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan's the only World Series he ever played in, in a, in a long and brilliant career. Um, uh, Tug McGraw, my best friend. Um, you know, just there was a sense that we were getting better. And there was a sense in 69 as we came out of spring training, we were going to be better. Nobody knew what better meant. Hmm. And if you look at, if you go online on a baseball reference and you look at all those play-by-play sheets that you can dredge up, they're really interesting. If you love minutia, you look at the games and the lineups that Hodges ran out there early in that year, the first couple of months, my God, those lineups, they had guys everywhere. And, and, and uh, Jim Gosger and, 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 uh, um, Gasper, Rod Gasper, and, 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 and there were, you know, he, Hodges was looking for something and I wasn't doing much. I was stumbling and bumbling and, you know, with, with a great opportunity, um, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't produce. And, and so Hodges is casting around looking for something while he's doing that at the end of May into June, we reel off 11 straight wins starting in Shea against the teams from California. We swept them in a three-team series. We go to California and continue the winning streak through 11 games. We go from bubbling around 500 to contenders. We're in the hunt. That's when the team made the Don Clendenin trade for a power-hitting first baseman uh, from Montreal. Montreal had been trying to trade him to Houston, and he wasn't going. So he was happy to come to the Mets and he was exactly what we needed. A, a, a little more bop at the plate from the right side. Um, Hodges had decided on a platoon lefty righty and he was going that way. And, 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 and he is to me, the missing piece, the element that we needed. Uh, and we kind of rolled from there. Uh, it, it still looked like the Cubs year rolling into September, uh, you know, August, rolling end of August, early September was the first glitch in, in, the, in the Cubs program. They went into a slump. We're winning three out of four, and we, we were five, six games behind them. We blow by them in, in, the, in expanse of 10 days, two weeks, and we're, and we're by them and never look back. And that was all because that team was so hot by then and the Cubs flattened out and, and um, you, you know, and, and they were gone. You mentioned how you noticed there was a shift in 1969 with that Mets team. And I feel like just to fast forward now, we're talking here around MLB opening weekend. And I feel like there's a similar shift that you could see in the Mets team now, obviously with new ownership, new players, Francisco Lindor gearing up, getting ready for the season. Do you see a similar atmosphere on today's net Mets team to the one of 69? There's new kind of energy and what we can kind of expect this season. If, if they're not excited by themselves at this point in time, if you're a New York Met right now and you're not excited by your opportunity and your chances with the additions, you know, Francisco Lindor, God, I hope they, I, I hope he finds a number he can, he can extend the contract for. I think it's folly for him not to take, find a number and sign. Comforto needs to be re-upped. Um, I, I, I think uh, uh, 
Uh, Pete Alonzo had a spring training where he started to prove that that his approach is less intense. Let the ball come to him. He's he can hurt you either way, left center, right center. Um, I think he's done that. I think they got a a, a a batting order that works. McCann is going to be surprising, I think, and handle that pitching staff. Um, I'd like to feel more confident about the bullpen, but you don't know till you see it work. Yeah. Uh, Diaz had a very solid spring. Uh, maybe he's settled in. Maybe he stopped. You know, maybe he stopped trying to throw too hard. Um, trying to throw the greatest slider you ever saw <laughs> since mankind, you know, yeah. uh, uh, moved out of the caves and, you know, uh, and, and just be what he is. What he is is plenty good and throw strikes with it, good strikes with it. You know, I think they've got a chance here. They should be excited by that. DeGrom, good God, the guy was 102 in spring training. Who does that? You know, that's ridiculous. I saw him pitch in uh, West Palm against Scherzer of the Nets. And DeGrom was, you know, as he usually is. He's, he's, he's the coolest number out there. Yeah. Ron, you know, we kind of going with this new energy. Obviously, a lot of it has to do with Steve Cohen, the new owner. Um, I'm just curious, you know, obviously, it's only been a few months. What is your kind of appraisal of what he's done so far? Do you see that shift? that the ownership has brought in terms of how the team is being run. And also on a side note, there's been talk of bringing back old timers day. Will you be participating if we bring it back? I don't know about taking the field because um, um, I can't run around like I used to <laughs> and I, I don't see as well, but uh, um, I heard that and I was like, yeah, that's nice because that didn't seem like um, a very important uh, uh, situation for for the previous ownership um steve cohen is treating the mets like a major market team is that clear i mean isn't that clear and yeah. and um you know it, it's not a gimme you know it's not a free pass to uh postseason but like i said you know here's a guy that's got you know artwork you know sitting around the house collecting dust that is worth hundreds of millions of dollars so hundreds of millions of dollars for elite class ball players isn't going to rattle uh, Steve Cohen too much. But he also understands, you know, he's going to be, you know, he, he with a major market sensibility, you know, he's going to try to get his money's worth. Um, he, he's, a, he's a pretty smart guy. I know, um, you know, that business he's in is pretty competitive and, you know, um, um, and he's seen all, all shades of it, you know, um, from the trouble with Preet Barrera, who tried to put him in jail, uh, to starting a new company and being pretty successful at it and buying the New York Mets, something that he's loved all his life as a fan. But, you know, he's, he's changed the environment. And, and, and players need to react to that. And, and, and this will be, be a different bunch. I think they'll go out there knowing what's expected of them and they have the tools to deliver. Last question for me, Ron, is, you know, you look at this Mets team and this year in general, we're getting fans back in the stands. I think it's a really important part of this and we're getting that return to, to some form of normalcy. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, people aren't as divided as they are now. What type of impact do you think having fans back, having the baseball season back can have here on, on as we head into April? 
You know, um, I was surprised as an old guy when COVID, the pandemic struck and, and that something, something as, um, as unsubjective as a pandemic became a political issue. I was surprised at that. I, I, I was surprised at that. Probably shouldn't have been. But I think baseball is one of those things that can unite people. I think you care about a baseball team. It is, um, it, it, you, you know, you, 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 care, you care about your team, you follow them, you can watch all the games, you know, on TV or on your computer. Um, and, 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 and you don't care what anybody's politics are. You care about how he's playing How's he representing himself in that uniform that you like and you buy all the stuff and the hats and I've got my Mets uh, alumni shirt Very nice. Very you know, nice. I wear my gear. I wear my little <laughs> Mets jacket around New Orleans because I care. Um, I think I think fans like that don't care about politics. They don't care about your politics. You care about is that pitcher out there out of gas and, and should Rojas be out there yanking him? You know that kind of stuff. That's that's the questions that baseball brings. I would like baseball to work a little harder uh, at 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 instructing people, educating them in the nuance. I think baseball's move is to sort of bury nuance and try to make the game a home run hitting contest. I despise that. I I, I think that's a bad idea. Baseball evolved um, uh, more than a couple of years back. Uh, to to something that is that is so rich in undercurrent and nuance and and that's what you need to sell and inform people about make them better viewers of the game and more aware of what's going on out there you know the duck you know swimming like hell under the water um, baseball has all of that that's going on and people need sometimes to be made aware of it that's on the play-by-play -play guys and 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 uh the color guys okay i think baseball should concentrate more on that than trying to make you know act like you people don't really like the game you know when you put a guy on second base in extra innings in the big leagues you're trying to shorten the game you're yeah. you're saying to me people don't like baseball enough to hang yeah. around and watch it you know people are going to be in and out of the game no matter what you do people they may not have three hours they may you know they may want to go back and watch the replay um but the game is too rich in nuance and beauty um, not to let that be the emphasis. These guys are great players. They're coached as good as anybody. The video backup, the weight workouts, they're better athletes overall. Um, uh, let's just let that talent come to the fore um, and, and, and stop, stop trying to monkey with the game in ways that convinces me you know, the commissioner, he might love being commissioner of baseball, but I'm not sure he loves baseball. Yeah. Well, Ron, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I definitely think that as a, as a diehard baseball fan, I totally agree. And, you know, um, that's definitely something that we should all keep in mind going into this season that, you know, we have to preserve the game and show a love for the game. But, you know, Ron, we appreciate you being here today uh, as a lifelong Met fan. It's been such an honor to talk to you and hear it, pick your brain. And, um, you know, thank you so much. Uh, you can get Ron's book, Here's the Catch, a memoir of the Miracle Mets and more, where books are sold. Ron, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys for having me on. This was, this was a treat. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Ron.
We'll be back with more of 101 right after the break. <laughs> 